Hold on, wait. Let me just one thing. Okay. It's, it's say, I'm just saying, just friends. I'll make it public. Okay. Now. So it's going to be streaming now. Okay. Okay. Quiet on the set. That's what you say, Cameron. That's what they say in movies when you're filming. Okay. What's a movie? One. What's the movie? Yeah. Two. Or videos also. Okay. All right. All right. Welcome. We're going to be uh, talking today about a subject that has a lot of people's interest, especially those that are, you know, I said thousands of people are doing that for me. Um, maybe, I don't know, would you say it's close to, there's a million? Are a million people around the world doing that for me? Possibly. Possibly. Right? I don't know what the number is exactly. But obviously, there's many people who are. Um, uh, doing Dafyomi, and of course, Perakachelik uh, is almost all I got. At the, at the end, we have some Gemaras about Yerani Dachas and some very important halachic Gemaras. Perakachelik is, of course, so renowned for being a source of Agadite. And it's almost like, on uh, one hand, when people are waiting for an Agadite to come into a halachic Gemara, so at that point, uh, people say, oh, got some good Agadite. Here, it's almost like it's almost block after block of Agadita without any break. It's almost like you feel swamped by it. Uh, so the ideas of Agadita, especially as it's, as, as, it, as it's piling off on us day after day, those of us who learned Afyomi. Uh, and I would say even those of us that are uh, learning now, say, for Bracious again, um, are also discovering once again the Mamore Chazal, the Agadita, the Madrashan, the Kota Bairashi. And, and I think it has to make us pause and, and think about the place of Agadatus, the place of these Mitroshim, um, and to understand that maybe what we don't understand. Um, and is there, uh, what is the pathway to understanding? And some, I'm going to chronicle a story today of, a, of a, an important person in Jewish history whose story actually, in a way, clarifies some of the difficulties that we that we have with Haggadah. Okay. Yes, Ari, what's the... Okay, do you want to mind putting this in your pocket? Just oh. stick with it? Okay, all right. Okay. I'm going to do that right now. So that's really the topic. Uh, the sponsors, uh, there's... Uh, it's, as I wrote over here, I'm going to just get their names. Uh, I think it is Rivka and Shimon Brody. Uh, they recently married couple. And uh, uh, we wish them, of course, all the best. I want to actually read uh, out loud... If I may, what we uh, what we sent out for them uh, a little different bracha. That's actually based on uh, you might have thought that it's actually based on the gemaras that we had. Um, let's see if we can get this. Okay, since we're going slow here, but part of it is that they these are a recently married couple. We wish them a bracha of their uh, their simcha together uh, with the recognition of each other should be flying because as we just had in the Dafyomi, if you've been up to it, when you have a good match, every day is almost wonderfully double for you. It's almost like the day can't be long enough. So that's this, the bracha that we wish for this new couple. Uh, these are Ben Torah. The, uh, the person is a, a Talmud Chochem who wants to keep on learning, be Marbet Torah. And of course, one of the things that, there we go, one of the things you want to be in terms of being Marbet Torah is, of course, being able to give over the ideas of Torah in the best possible way. And uh, clearly, a path of giving over Agadita properly, and as the Gemara says, it's Moshech Libo Shalodam, 
especially if you want to be involved with Talmudim. So hopefully this year should, should add a schus for the couple and in terms of generally strengthening the role of Talmud HaChachomim and being Marbet's Torah. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I said, uh, That's the Gemara we just added to Yomi. And every day, based on the Sefer Ben Sir, it's almost like a double day of Simcha. So, Mirza Hashem, that we should only see Nachas, Simchas by other people who are making simchas and, and, and couples. Okay, so today's shir, as I said, it's really the story. I want to look at everything through the prism of a specific story. And that's Amsterdam's Agatha Agnostis. Agnostis, I'm sorry. Agnostis is a Greek word that means the struggles. The struggles in Amsterdam over Agatha, circa 1618. Um, and why is Amsterdam so important for us? So if you take a look on the other board for a second, um, we have here uh, a couple of different points here. We realize that the inquisitions that were affecting Spain and then Portugal were happening uh, and came to a head crisis in 1397 and 1492. In other words, the inquisition started in the beginning of the uh, 14th century, in the beginning of the 1300s. There was a sense by the Christian church that the Jews were having too much control. There was too much, in fact, the Jews were so um, well-placed in so many positions that they would actually begin to infiltrate uh, and again, I and David Duke and all his horrors recently that the Jews are going to infiltrate and uh, upset the whole society. So basically what happened was was there was redeemness against Jews and especially there was this idea that the Jews were going to sort of pass themselves off as Christians, and in that way, marry into Christian families and pollute the gene pool and pollute Christianity in general. So, as a religious act, uh, the Spanish government, with their kings and queens, uh, allowed and actually sanctioned and pushed the Inquisitions, where Jews were asked terrible questions, and they were, in other words, the Inquisitors, right? The Grand Inquisitor, you would say, well, I'm an inquisitive person. These inquisitors were not so, you know, again, they were, uh, and again, they, it wasn't uh, it, like, it, like Mel Brooks did in, in the history of the world, part one, where the guys were dancing around. The Inquisition was terrible. They asked questions, yes. The questions, of course, were crucial. Were, what do you believe in? What are you really about? Um, and uh, the Jews that were, of course, uh, affected by this, and we know, of course, that they were burned in the state. Many Jews were given the choice to leave in 1397. It was just this possibility, and they left. Uh, the Jews that, but many Jews couldn't leave. How could you leave your parnasa? How could you leave your, your life, what you had built up? So what began in earnest, of course, was crypto-Judaism, where you had Jews who openly uh, said that they had accepted uh, Christ as their savior and that they were part of the Catholic Church, but secretly they actually tried to adhere to Judaism as much as possible. Now, of course, in a hundred years especially, things got pretty difficult. 
In other words, even though it's, say, the mid-14th century, there were still schools, there were still rabbonim, but by the time we get to 1492, by the time we get to the, the, the second expulsion of the Jews from Spain, the grand expulsion, the one that we all know about, yes, there were crypto-Jews, but these crypto-Jews hadn't gone to school, they hadn't been able to go to shul, they hadn't been able to be exposed uh, to the type of learning. They secretly kept certain minhagim, and those minhagim all started changing. Right, A similar f- effect occurred, as we know, in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, mid-part of the 20th century, in Soviet Russia, where, again, because I mentioned my grandmother last week, but again, because of the lack of learning, the lack of schooling, and, and we saw it in terms of, of the Russian Jews who came here in the late 60s and 70s, including my grandfather I mentioned last week, that their knowledge of Judaism was all very, was almost like a, like, like a broken crossword puzzle. They had a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of mixture of, of Christian minhagim. That, that's the way it was. We saw an example of what Murano Judaism was when the Jews came out uh, of, of Russia in the 60s and 70s and 80s. A similar, and that's it was it, the way it was for the Murano Jews at that period. So many of them, of course, as we know, decided uh, to stay. But others felt that, especially at this expulsion, um, that they were going to make their way out. Uh, they tried to keep Judaism as much as they could, but they were going to make their way out. Now, what were some of the methods of the Inquisition? Some of the methods of the Inquisition were actually trying to not just burn people at the stake, but actually to push people to give up their religion because your religion is wrong. Right? That was part of the idea. Part of the idea was is that the, the Jewish religion is, the, the religion of the Torah is already pat. It's already over. And in fact, they would actually try to prove from the Bible itself that God wants a new picture. He wants a new sort of thing on the table, Christianity. And there was, of course, the debates. We all know about the famous debate of the Ramban, the Bikuach of the Ramban, that occurred. But these, in terms of with Pablo Christiani, where the Ramban was debating with various psukim in Yeshayahu and other places in the Chazal. And it was even there that the Ramban uh, had to say he can't be bound by all the Midrashim. Because the Midrashim are one of the issues that were brought up, that the Midrashim seemed to indicate some sort of new world that sounded like uh, something similar to the world that the Christians had said had already arrived. And instead of the Ramban trying to explain that Midrash, the Ramban actually just said that we're not bound by all the Midrashim. The Midrashim aspect of halacha doesn't bound us in the same way. And the Ramban, of course, is, was reported, in a sense, won the debate, and he had to escape because there was a death sentence that was issued for the Ramban. And, of course, he made his way there to Israel. But, however, these type of debates kept on going. And whether they were an official debate or not, Jews were bombarded by the ideas that their religion was old hat, that their religion was a a dying religion, and a religion that really um, should not be embraced. Now, um, and and that was part of the the attacks that these Murano Jews had. Not only were there persecution against them keeping, there was also a mental assault that the typical crypto-Jew had. And that assault was... Does my religion make sense? It was interesting, you know, as you saw, I appended to the email uh, an incredible article, 
And again, I, I, I'm loath a little bit to tell you a little about the history of this gentleman, but uh, I spoke with Eric a little bit about it earlier. Uh, this is uh, Yeshaya Zana, or Yeshaya Sana, who is actually a, um, I have to give credit where credit is due, he uh, was a professor at the Hebrew Union College uh, for many years. Uh, that's the uh, Reform Seminary uh, in Cincinnati. Uh, he wrote uh, prolifically in Hebrew and English. Uh, very, if you re- if you got a chance to look at this, uh, a very lively writer uh, and brilliant. So he actually, in this article that I sent you, um, he actually indicates what was going on. That what was what was happening here was a. And I'm just going to read a little bit from him. Um, take a look. Um, all right. If everybody can see, I'm going to try to make it a little larger. Okay. Um, okay, so he's actually... Let me go up a little bit. It's necessary to glance in the difficulties and perplexities besetting Spartan communities in general. Murano um, suffered from a split conscience acquired during the centuries in which they led a double life a Christian life forced on them externally, and a Jewish life longed for inwardly. Now, here's that everybody knows. But here's the part that I thought was wonderfully uh, encapsulated. Nor was that the only conflict from which they suffered. An additional dichotomy was inflicted on them by the church. This is the cleavage exhibited in the vast literature of polemics. Now, this means they want to reshape the neo-Christian mind, and they say, hey, we want you back. We want you to be part of the Christian world. What are the obstacles that stops a Jew from being a Christian? So he says the factors were twofold. What were they? So take a look. One of these obstacles was Jewish rationalism. We know that everything was not super hunky-dory for the Jews in Spain, spiritually, even before the Inquisition. Um, There's been a number of... um, Roshonim or Achronim who tried to explain why is it that the Inquisition was brought onto Spain? Why was it that the, the, the glorious, most glorious Jewish community suffered almost a complete and total shutdown? Again, the same sort of people, the same sort of ideas of why did, why did the Jews in Europe all uh, suffer a complete and total destruction? People were looking for reasons. So one of the reasons, of course, that was given is because <laughs> philosophy had... Uh, in, had had infiltrated the Jewish mind in Spain. Many people blame the Rambam, who was not living in Spain, although he was born there. That is the Rambam. People saw the Rambam as a beacon of rationalism, and it got to the point. Of course, with Moshe Mikutsi, the Sefer, the author of the Sefer Smag, written uh, in France, in Kutsi, said that he came to Spain on a on a mission. And he saw people were not wearing tillin, people were really davening. There was a basic uh, a sense that you don't really have to do the mitzvahs. You just have to understand the principles behind that. You just have to know the philosophical underpinnings of the mitzvahs. Be a good Jew in your heart. The mitzvahs were just a means to a philosophical end. And therefore, there was a lack of shmiras on mitzvahs uh, that was happening in Spain. And it was more than just the lack of mitzvahs. There was also a, 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 an attempt to, to reduce everything to rationalist ideas, right? Everything has to be rational and make sense. 
and it has to be understood by our mind, and things that are irrational were sort of went by the wayside. So that already was happening in Spain, even though they were Jews. So as Sona says here, that the rationalism was contrary to the mysticism, the anti-rationalism uh, of Christian dogma. Rationalism had to be combated. Mystic tendencies, widespread among the Jews, had to be encouraged. In other words, let's say you're dealing with a, a, a rationalist family. So the way you want to turn them Christian is to actually talk about all the mystical parts of Christianity that Jesus becomes embodied in a human being and there's various rituals you can do there's various actions you can do that have almost like a magical aspect to them so that was one attack but on the other hand there was many Jews that were, weren't Rambam types they weren't Maimonideans they still were involved in Jewish ritual and he says rituals root in mysticism to, to counteract the leaning toward Jewish ritual the church had to invoke rationalism so basically what they had to do was ridicule rabbinic superstition and have to restore the appeal to the intellect which it had previously discredited. Um, so as you can see, there was, they were coming from two ends. They were actually doing the opposite. On one hand, Muranos were being said that you should embrace a religion that's beautiful, that you go to the church, you drink the blood of Jesus, you're able to believe in transubstantiation, you're allowed to, right? And these were mystical ideas. On the other hand, they would attack Judaism for being superstitious, and there's no reason to be there. So because of that, as you can see, as Sona says, um, on the other hand, by condemning rabbinic superstitions, the church was saying, well, reason is right. So if you want me to believe in reason, why should I get you, why, excuse me, why should I use your church? Your church is full of, 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 of superstition. So that's why the Moranos were sort of in between these two situations. Now, what's my point here? My point is, is that when these people were able to leave, when they were able to leave in the 16th century, when they were able to start from the expulsion during the whole part of what we call the 1500s, they made their way to places, but many of them said, okay, now that I'm no longer under Spain and Portugal, I want to start again. Where did these people go? Well, some went to Eretz Yisrael. Let me show you on the map. Some went to, here, let's take a look. So again, they had to go from Spain. So, some of them will go to Eretz Yisrael, right? Here's Spain, and here's Portugal here. So, some of them will go to Eretz Yisrael. Many of them, however, didn't make it because Eretz Yisrael was not so hospitable. It wasn't so easy uh, to navigate some of the Arab issues there. <coughs> some of them, although these, this was also a Muslim country, uh, Constantinople and Turkey were a little bit easier. And Greece, which was connected as well, there was a huge Jewish community in Salonika and over here. Besiosif was here as well. So many Jews settled here. This was a place. There was, of course, Jews who did come from Spain, and those were some of the people that pushed in the 16th century for the Fidesz Asmicha. That's why in the time of the Beis Yosef, as you know, the Beis Yosef got Smicha, because one of the leaders of uh, Judaism was the Beis Yosef's Rebbe, the Marie Beirab, and there were many Moranos who had come, former Moranos, who said, I want there to be a Besden. And you know why they wanted a Besden? They wanted a Besden to be able to 
give themselves makas, right? They they knew that they had eaten chametz on Pesach, they had eaten on Yom Kippur, uh, they had done a lot of yisurim, uh, they did mechal Shabbos b'farhesia. Uh, they wanted to be able to do tshuva, and they knew from the sources that if you if you're chayiv kares, one of the ways you can do tshuva is for a bezdin to administer thirty nine makas. So they wanted when they came to Eretz Yisrael. There was a sense that we have so many great Rabbanim here, we have so many people who are coming here, we have the right to institute the Sanhedrin again, or at least a miniature aspect of the Sanhedrin. And that was one of the things that pushed that uh, controversy, the Smicha controversy of the mid-16th century. So that happened in Eretz Yisrael. Many of the Jews, however, stayed here. Salonika ended up being built up very strongly. Many of the Muranos came here. Let's see if we get Venice here. Venice, of course, was basically Italy, but in many ways part of Southern Europe. Let's take a look. Go to Venice. There we go. So, so here's Venice. Let's go out. I want to show you a little bit of where it is. So you see where Venice is. Okay, why is that? I don't want that. Oh. So you see where Venice is, right here. So once again, Venice is very close to Germany, Austria, not even so far from Poland or Switzerland. Look, people think about Venice, right? They think about Rome. But you can see where Venice is. It's very much part of this, what we know as the heart and the schmaltz of Judaism. That's why many of the escapees of the 14th century from Germany, actually Venice was their first spot. Right? There was a huge Ashkenazi community. I spoke about the Maram Padova, who was an Ashkenazi, even though he's called Maram Padova. His father-in-law was a Katzenellenbogen. So these were all Germans who were escaping German persecution, the Freinleich massacres and others. So Venice was just like a first spot. Technically, it was part of the papal... Uh, uh, um, it's, uh, it was part of the Papal States, and technically it was still part of, of, of Italian influence, but there was no way that Venice uh, and Padua, which was right next to Venice, there's no way that it was going to be like the rest uh, of Italy, like down here. Okay, this is where the mafia comes from, by the way, or Sicily, of course. But they, weren't, they were not uh, the same. But Venice was a place that uh, welcomed the Muranos, and the Muranos were able to find uh, quite a bit of, of, a lot, of a strong community. Now, another place where the Muranos started uh, uh, piling into in the middle of the 16th century and through even in the beginning of the 17th century was, let's find it over here, um, Poland, not so much. Hamburg, yes. Hamburg did have a lot of the Muranos, that's true, but the city I'm looking for here is Amsterdam. So this is really why now. The famous shul. Um, I'm not sure. <coughs> there probably is. Let's see. We got Amsterdam here. Here. Yeah. Go. Oh, okay. So this city, uh, for a good reason, there's a lot of traffic, and, and part of it is because it was. In a sense, okay. Can we give me the big picture, please? Here we go. In many ways, it was. It's sort of like, uh, it's sort of a little bit. It was more than that. It was the financial. It was almost the most important city in the world for a while, as we know. Even that town right over there, you can see, of course, was really developed and founded by 
Spanish Portuguese. New Amsterdam, right? Right? That one right over there. You can see it out the window. Right? New York, of course, was originally called New Amsterdam. Of course, that was it. And the Dutch Trading Company, those were, right? So that's where it was. Let me explain it better. Venice, Salonika, Hamburg, although Hamburg a little bit more was a trading, a banking center. Those were places that they went because of, uh, of, of a certain amount of freedom and because there was established Jewish communities that would absorb them and help them reclaim what they were as Jews again and help them on the path. Amsterdam was the was like going to the west in uh, the 49ers, right? To go to the not the same the same thing. To go out west when there's gold, there's something out there. That's a place where it's it's it, there's opportunities. That's where there's money. That's where and there was also the wondrous things as we know. Baruch Hashem, they have the schus, the Dutch, that they consistently uh, try to give Jews throughout their history. Uh, a sense of freedom. We know the Queen stood up to a lot of the fascism and a lot of uh, the hatred in, this, in, the, in, in, um, in World War II. Of course, Anne Frank did was uh, hiding in Amsterdam. But I think even the fact that that Anne Frank was able to hide as long as she did is also a testimony to the tolerance, at least, that the average uh, Dutch non-Jew and Gentile was willing to help. We know that uh, many of the people who helped the Franks uh, have been ensconced in, in, by the Chassidim. They're known as the Chassidim Masa'olam, in terms of what they're able to do. So Amsterdam, again, has a lot of skuyot and history about what Jewish life was there. What I'm really talking about, though, isn't how good the Goyim were, how good the non-Jews were, how and, and how that area was great for them. The Jews themselves found themselves here, and unlike these other communities, it was new. And so many Moranos had come in, they sort of had to figure it out again, how do we develop our Judaism? Well, some of them came there, and they were ready to be as, as <coughs> like the Mekubalim. They were ready to do all the mystical things of Judaism. But others, remember where they were coming from, they had, they had been suffering under a barrage of Judaism. Is a ra- it should be rationalist. This was like a, a holdover from the, the Mamanidians in Spain, and this is what had kept their Judaism alive. So when they came there, it was hard for them to deal with the the other Jewish community in Amsterdam who were basically keeping Torah and mitzvahs, learning Gemara, learning the Agathas, learning the Rashis. Remember, they although they studied Bible, they studied the Mikra, they never learned Chumash with Rashi. They never learned with Midrashim, right? The Agadites that they they didn't really have Gemaras that they were able to expose to. So when these Jews came <coughs> there, what they found was, yes, we welcome back, welcome back to Judaism, but it was hard. And that's our our, our friend uh, David Farrar. Uh, David Farrar uh, engaged, and this is a. Uh, Sana uh, found this. A, uh, he engaged in a debate with Christians in 1608. There's actually a pamphlet that uh, that has his name to it, where he was. Um, uh, there was. Let me find you his name, the Christian fellow that he was debating. So, what is it again? David Farrar was a doctor. Many of these Moranos, especially, you know, were, were just like Svartim at that time. They they had a great appreciation. For wisdom, sciences, they many of them 
had medical degrees and understood the natural world. And, and Farrar was a doctor, but it wasn't a strange thing that he should become a leader and a teacher as well. So let me show you what some of the uh, Farrar, what, what happened with him. Um, let's see, do I have it here? Let's go back to the... Um, let's go back to um, Farrar's... Here we go. So I want to show you that... <laughs> and again, this is why when you have time and you can do research, you can find things that are incredible. There does exist, and again, it's uh, uh, the language that it's written, I'm not sure if it's in Dutch, but here it is. Okay, so, here we go. Okay, so, if you will, just give me a second here. Okay, okay. So, there's a pamphlet that appeared in the year 1608 and shows that Farrar was actually involved in a debate with a preacher called Hugh Blow. Um, now, I, 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 I don't see, I guess it was published again in Amsterdam in English. That's what it sounds like. Because it seems like they, this is, it was printed, it sounds like the, just like today, you go to Amsterdam, you can speak English in the street. It sounds like because maybe of the trading that was going on there, that things were not just published in Dutch, but they were published in English there. I don't know enough about this. But here's what the pamphlet said. Our Lord's family, many other pointies, the points depending on it, opened against the Jew. Rabbi David Farah, they called him a rabbi. Again, he was raised, uh, he escaped from, uh, from, from Portugal. He was living his early life as a Marana, which meant he was not able to keep Torah mitzvahs. He probably didn't have a bris mila until uh, he arrived in Amsterdam. And he found himself involved in a dispute uh, against the Jew, who they disputed many hours with the hope to overthrow the gospel, uh, open in Hebrew explication of Christianities. Um, and as you can see, that this was a debate that he had over um, of, uh, about whether Judaism is correct or not. Um, a lot of the debate had to do with whether Mashiach has already arrived. Those of us that are learning the Dafyomi remember that there's a lot of cheshbonos. Uh, uh, Some of those cheshbonos actually uh, uh, line up from Daniel into those years that this was going on. So the Mashiach definitely had happened. Thank you, Nehemiah. I'm happy to see you there. Um, um, and you can see that the debate was really about about him was going to show proofs that from Judaism himself that Christianity is correct. Now, Bouton had help. He had a, a Meshumid uh, who had been able to help him to show that that Christianity was right. There's riots, in other words, and most of them were from the Midrashim. Okay? Um, look at this. I'm going to write it after, after the debate was over. Broughton uh, wrote, um, I will write a book in Latin that answers you in print. Uh, this is what Farrar said. 
Broughton said, um, you wanted me to answer in Hebrew, I'm going to answer from the rabbin's own syllables. In other words, I'm going to show you from your own sources that Judaism is incorrect and Christianity is the right religion. Now, what were they, what were they talking about? So they were talking about uh, Midrashim. That was the issue. There was a Medrash, and I'm going to show you this Medrash. Many of you have seen a reference to it. I'm going to show it to you right now. Uh, it, it might be shocking to some of you. I hope not. Uh, it's, it's quoted by um, uh, the Rabbeinu Bachia. Uh, the Rahayim HaKadosh refers to it. And let me find it for you. Here we go. This is a Medrash Tillim. Hashem Matir Asurim. Right? God is going to be Matir. So what is Pashup Shat? Okay, let's get some other people talking on the video here. What does it mean to be Matir Asurim? Simple Shat? What's the simple Shat? God is Matir Asurim? Release prisoners. Release prisoners, right? But look at the Medrash says. All the Bahamas that are Tame in this world, right? They're going to be Tahar, lost in Lava. Right? Right? That's what the Pesach says. In other words, just like the, before B'nai Dayak, they were able to eat all animals. Even animals that didn't have, that's why two by two, right? Noah took and trade what we call non kosher animals. So that's what's going to be in the future, too. Uh-huh. So, in other words, there's going to be a time that in the future that the laws of kosher won't apply. Okay. Okay, so why is why is it also? Loma also. Liros, Misha Makabo, Dvarv, Mi Makabo. We're supposed to just show obedience now, but the future time, the time after Mashiach comes, which is again part of what Jesus said, you know, all those things are going to be mutter. No rules. Now, the Yeshobrim, though, ain't a matir in Right? Right? And, okay. But the Yeshobrim disagrees, so. Um, but even the Yeshomrim says, what does it mean, Matir Asurim? Ain't it, Sir Godum and Atayra, Shaishiro Adam, but Osrakan is Parko Lavaila, Losin Lavo, Dam Nida is not going to be a problem, which is again a big finish. That somehow the blood, the, again, that might have to do with the source of sin that is somehow tied behind menstruation, but the future, Dam is on the Via Mesura Khatum Avram in Oretz. Vain Tuma Elanida. Okay? Um, <laughs> some say it's going to go the opposite. Av Tashu Shamiti Yasuri Losin Lovo, Shem Yoshinu Akarish Borko, Arsina Lita Naitero, Yisrael, Osir Tashu Shamita Shlisha Yomim. But what's going to happen in the future? So let's take a look what's going to happen in the future. Losin Lovo. It's not going to be usher, right? Isure Mavis, Isure Shol. So again, um, these Midrashim, you look at them and you say, what? Right? Now, those of you that have an outer Jewish history know that these Midrashim, a hundred years, at, about, a hundred years, about sixty years after this Farar incident, were used, of course, by who? 
Shabbat Shalom. Right? These were some of the midrashim that were used by the Sabbateans to show that now that Shabbat Shalom has arrived, that the many of these Yisurim don't need to be don't need to be observed. Well, before Shabbat Shalom, these midrashim were being uh, thrown at people like Farrar in order to explain well, what's going on. And Farrar had to defend them. And Farrar was just like the rest of the Murano Jews. And many of them were struggling with the idea of, well, what's with these Madrashim? What's well, What do these Madrashim mean? Right? Are we supposed to understand it literally, that the Torah is actually going to change? Okay. So, let us take a look and see uh, what occurred. Um, Farrar <coughs> turned to Modena. Why did he turn to Modena? So let's look at our map again. That's, that's me. I don't know why I put that there. I'm just trying to, I think I was trying to comb my hair before. But okay. Uh, <laughs> All right. Um, let's take a look at where Modena was. So Modena was here in, come on, come on, map. I, I downloaded Google Earth, but for some reason it, it's taken a while to load. Here's Modena, over here in Venice. Okay? The Venice saw themselves as the patrons of the Jews of Amsterdam. Where's that up there, right? Where's Amsterdam again? Uh, right. Here's Amsterdam. So the, the Venetian Jews, especially Modena, felt an affinity to what was going on here. They wanted this community to work. They, now the reason was is because, and this is a good question, one of the, you could say simply because, well, they're sort of smart in, right? Part of it was that this would be an example that you could sort of like, uh, I'm going to say a little bit, compare this to why the Chazanish wanted everybody to come to B'nai Brak. Chazanish felt that Yerushalayim was, I don't know if the Chazanish is going to be so happy that I'm comparing uh, himself to Modena, but still, <laughs> the Chazanish, the same way the Chazanish felt, that the way to save and to create a, a pure sense of Judaism was to move away from the hustle and bustle of, of Yerushalayim and go to B'nai Brak. The same way many of the Jews in Venice felt that something special could happen here. These Murano Jews, in a way, are untainted. True, they have all that history, but maybe if we can shepherd them, they can actually create almost a, 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 a purer type of, of Yiddishkeit. True, they, they come with a lot of baggage, but they're eager to learn, and, and they, they have a desire to build and be part so therefore, it struck a chord with many of the rabbanim there that they and, and they turned to them too. They said, "Hey, we, we don't know how to build a community. Maybe you can help us." So Farrar turned to Modena with his questions. I'll show you some of the questions that Farrar asked, and then we're going to get into Farrar when Farrar was put to Chayim in, a, in a, a two or three minutes. But I want to show you the questions that. Farrar was asked, Farrar asked Modena. Here they are. Nobody here speaks Italian, right? We have, right? We have no real Italian speakers here, but this is it. Um, Eric, is this Italian? Yeah, right? Right. Okay. So this is, so you can see that Farrar spoke Italian as much as he was a Portuguese person. Oh, do you speak Italian at all? Spanish is like this one. Okay, but you can see this is this is the letter written in uh, Senor David Ferrar. I can do that. Um, so here's the letter in its original Italian, and a 
again. Here's the translation. Hold on. Translation is coming. These are all the different questions. Questo. The questo is the, the questions that he has. These are all the nine points. Okay? So these are the nine points of uh, that he asked him about. Okay. Okay, the eagerness. I, even if I shall not be lengthy in my replies. Various troubles and afflictions restrain me. Troubles which are the foe of virtue and afflictions such as the fall of the studious. Madonna is saying, you know, I, I'm always learning. I've always got some czars. So I shall answer every question briefly. Okay. First of all, you're asking a question for me. What about the Chazal that say that the, that the Mayadim are going to be bottled in the future? Right? That's what Medrash says. The Kola Mayadim are going to be bottled in the future. Except for what? Purim, right? What does that mean? Right? That sounds like that when, when the Mashiach comes, no more Torah, or at least a lot less Torah. So he says it doesn't really mean that. It means that because of the great miracles of the Yemaisa Mashiach, they're going to take a sort of a second, they're going to take a back, uh, a back seat. Okay, that's that question. Okay, second question. The notion that the eating of the swine's flesh will be permitted in the Messianic age is a detestable falsehood. Um, because they say, what does it mean, Chazir? Chazal say, why is it called Chazir? So the Medrash says, because that God is going to return the Chazir to us. I know there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, entrepreneurs in Kansas City and in Memphis and all the places where they do the book, their barbecue, they're going to be happy about that. <laughs> they're going to... Right? When I was growing up in Memphis, I used to drive with the, they would drive down Summer Avenue. I was the first kid picked up on the bus. And all I saw was all these little piggies, all these barbecue pig places. That's, <laughs> you ever see that? That's, that's the best barbecue. That's, that's, right? So here it's saying that the pigs are coming back. So he says that, um, he says there is a chazan. You can take a look. Um, he quotes it over here. Take a look in this footnote. Um, um, so basically, this was like a corruption of the Medrash. So Medrash was saying, That's one version of the Medrash. So you have to understand, we all know that Esau and Rome and the Midrashic eyes were all like one line, right? Even though Esau is really not the progenitor of the Roman people, but there was this sense that Esau is Edom, the Golos of Rome is called Golos Edom, um, Edom is compared to Achazir, so you have sort of like this whole idea in the Midrashic and post-literature uh, that, the, that, that the Christian dominance of the world is the Malchus Edom similar to the Chazir? You have plenty of Chazal that's like that, and therefore what we're saying is just like Yaakov when he comes out of the womb. What is he holding on to? Esau's heel. Rashi already says that means he's going to eventually take Esau over. That's the future. That's what the Medrash really means. That we're going to get the Malchus. Hakadosh Baruch is going to bring it back. But as you can see, Hamalim Mevinim Shoyatar Yisrael. Most people who saw that medrash thought it meant that the Chazer would actually be allowed. The, again, 
you have to say, in the world of the Medrash, the Chazir was the symbol of Rome. Rome was the symbol of the power of the world. Dafyomi recently, remember? Rabbi Yochanan says, I don't want to see the Mosa Mashiach because there's going to be this great power struggle, a power change, where the Christian world is going to actually have to give up their power. That's the idea that the Medrash is trying to say about the Chazir that the Roman Christian world and domination is going to recede and God is going to give back a lot of that strength to us, right? The Again, the same sort of incredible influence that the Pope wields and that the Catholic world has, that sort of influence is going to be now shunted into the Jewish preachers, the Jewish ideals, like we talked about in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, that that's going to be the spiritual center of the world. Mecca, Rome, or whatever it is, are all going to be imploded, or they're going to shift themselves towards us. That's what the Medrash means, using the word chazir and playing on the word chazir. But again, the simple shot is, is that mitzvahs and a lot of these things don't aren't relevant anymore. So because of that, um, Farrar had a problem. So I think that's really enough here in terms of, 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 of where Farrar was holding. The next thing I want to show you is what happens about um, uh, eight years later. So it's approximately 400 years ago. So let me get this for you. Um, so I actually want, let me see. Uh, here we go, page one. Okay, so now we bring into uh, our story Yehuda Arizu Medena. Yehuda Medena, at this time when he was writing this, he was sort of at the end of his career, but he had become the darshan uh, in Venice. And he, by the way, uh, how many people do um, how many people do um, uh, Kippur Kota? Anybody? Yeah. Does anybody do it? Okay. So the Nusach that's in the Siddur, the, the Piyut that we do was written by him. Now he was known, he wrote his biography, uh, we know that he was a gambler, we know that he enjoyed going to the plays, we know that he was uh, a person who uh, perhaps maybe had his own doubts of certain things. He had a difficult life, according to his own mind, but he's left a, an incredible literature that many people see him as almost the first sort of secret rabbi who was trying to rebel. There is a tshuva in the Tzitz Eliezer from Rav Waldenberg, where somebody, Rav Waldenberg, I've mentioned him before, was of course the head of the Rabbanut Dot Bezdin, and somebody mentioned the tshuva from this collection, and he goes on for three pages basically saying, this is not a rabbi, just because he wrote a safer, and he quotes many, many, uh, and again, he was, he's known as this rebellious rabbi, I should, I should put my cards on the table. I did write Zeker Tzadik V'Kodesh Lebrocha after all these rabbis. Modena is one of the most interesting uh, people, and of course you're familiar, you've probably heard about it before. What? You have, you have one of his books, and books about it. So anyway, take a look at what he says here. So he says, I'm writing a book to the Rabbonim in Salonika. He says, In other words, you took out that sword that's ready to, to stab, that sword that's so dangerous. You put this man in Chayrim, you rabbis of Salonika. The rabbis in Amsterdam sort of said, hey, we don't know what to do. We'll see why. What did he do wrong? Might have a minute. But 
he's writing to the rabbis in Salonika, and he says, how dare you put it to Cheret? He says, I'm, I'm shocked. What's going on? Anshei Levov Kamochem, Abirei Aron, Gedol Yisrael, Lahoti Metachas Yadeichem, Kodesh Kazev, Vekazos, Al Gevra Chochem, Veishtas, Mahamitz Koch, Bamunas Amitish, Al Taira. He's a great guy. He cares about the faith of our, of, of our Torah. And what are you doing? You're Kumu Vakolat Sipur. You're hearing the wisp, the, the sounds of the birds. Kol Machatzitzim, the people that are rabble rousers. Itzim, Oyev, and Besaynim, Lahargoy. You want to kill a guy, putting him in cheyrim without the proper procedure. First, you have to hear the story, and then you'll decide. And you can see how he's actually alluding to the half psukim and mamarech hazal. This was a person who could, you know, on his fingertips. You can see the type of style that he that he had. He says, first of all, we know a malkinelam came masrin. You can't put a person in Cheyrem until you warn him and before you, you impose the death, which is Cheyrem. Cheyrem is death, as we know, from Spinoza, Picasso, and the people that were in Cheyrem that, 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 that lived such tragedies. You, you're ready? You wrote a Ksav of Cheyrem against David Farrar? To me, he says, you know what? It's, the, it's not because I don't know anything. I'm not fooled. Before you guys got involved six months ago, they called us in Venice. Before they reached out to Salonika to give the cheyrim, we, the rabbis of Venice, and me at Roche, you already said, I was involved in this. And we heard about the chshod of she'ish halos. Yeah, some tov over there, some from people who keep keep hakarnu and said that some about him. Hakarnu with the ration of a diktik yesterday, Daka and Adaka. We looked at this as as close as you could possibly look at something, and we heard about all the details. Lamalig, what do you call him? Lamalig b'tivrei chazal. Farrar is 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 ridiculing the rabbis. We just had it off Yomi. That's not Bikoris. You lose your Oilam Hava, your Mike Menasha. But you know what? To me, P. Meirosha Shalom. He sent a defender. But Meirosha is, he sent an agent to defend him. So I don't know if he went to Venice or he wrote a letter on his behalf. The Idios Bixav, we got testimonies from people in Amsterdam. He's a good Jew. And he holds a Chazal. Let's take a look. Even though you're telling me he's Malagan Divrechakamim, let me just get here to the end. Bechol Divrechem. JPEG, where are you? says that he says he loves them. He loves Chazal. Um, and we gave him, uh, 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 we gave him, everybody can see, we gave him an Aegis. Um, is that a Kaifer, a Teresh Now, here you're going to see in the middle here, you take a look at what he says here. He says, first of all, he helped create the community, uh, he helped create one of the, uh, the Murano Portuguese community there. Karkafta de Monach he wears tefillin. That's good. 
And I wear tefillin. Tzitzis kemat kol ayom. And he wears tefillin and tzitzis almost all day. Yayu b'sheichel agishtem estam yeno. I can give a whole sheer about this, but we know in many Renaissance Jews, they drank wine everywhere, right? Because that's what everybody drank. There was no Coke. There was no bottled water from Perrier. Basically, everybody drank wine. And the wine or the vintories were from non-Jews. So there was basically almost like everybody drank it. Same way everybody goes into Starbucks today, and oh, I'm going to go meet you in the Starbucks. People went and drank wine from these little kiosks all over the place. It was almost... Uh, almost uh, people that Davin Betzibor had all uh, <coughs> the positions in the community, and Modena says <laughs> he doesn't do that. He won't drink stamina. From the time he returned, and he's no longer a Marano Jew, he's decided he's not going to drink stamina. There's many who are born Jews, the ones who weren't Moranos, who had a bris when they were eight, who are today in Italy, especially in Venice, where he knew about it, <laughs> and there are people, post-skim, who are allowing people to drink Stamieno, wine that's totally uh, developed and vinted by non-Jews, saying there's no Easter anymore. And I know he's more machmer on that. So, you're going to make him so usher. Now, as he says, just in terms of the measures, I just want to show you this. We'll end with this. Um, so he says that, okay. So he says, what did he say wrong? So he says, so what did he say? He found some Aymara Chazal that God shaved Sancheirim's Sancheirim completely, right? Uh, today's yesterday's Dafyomi. Navot uh, uh, saw fire coming out of his genitalia, and because of that, he said, "I'm going to become a melech." So when he found Divrei Chazal like that, and what did he say? He said, "Kipshat os Yosef v'derech I'm going to I'm going to explain these allegorically. Oh, Yomer Bipshad Aksuvim Derech Acher, Shalay Dorach by Rashi, Vamaforsham Akadmainim Zal. He's going to explain a passage. He's not going to quote Rashi. He's not going to say that when uh, Basparo came uh, to save Moshe, that her hand stretched out like Reed Richards in order to be able uh, uh, to save Moshe Rabbeinu. Right? Hello, Zed Derech Kol Mayan Vidarshan. Everybody gives a drasha. They don't always explain everything based on the drasha of Rashi. He doesn't believe that there are tzaddikim, like we saw in the Gemara and the Dafyomi recently, that Avishai was able to use the name of God in order to save David from death. By the hand, who was throwing him up over there? Forgot? Uh, it was Yish, it was Golis' brother, right. right? That he was going to kill him. So Avishai came and used the shame and he levitated him, right? That he wasn't going to die. So what did Farrar say? Farrar said, you can't do that today. There's nobody, who, that doesn't happen anymore. There's nobody who has that. So you're going to say that uh, that makes him an Afikaris because he says nobody has that type of power today. So he says, 
Those are reasons why he wants to clear it. Now, obviously, again, this really brings up a lot of the struggles that many of us have. Now, in context, we can understand why they wanted to put him in Hiram. Because otherwise, that whole community, who knows what would have happened. Maybe they would have just assimilated back with the Christians. Clearly, Hazal, Midrashim, situations, and again, you can see them mentioned here in this tshuva, they are things that represent a great challenge. Modena said he's trying his best. He's being mafarishet in one of a rational way. But, depending on where this, these farm are, are, these things are being said, we can see the type of reaction. So, Okay, so we'll stop here uh, to give you a real sense. Tarar, I guess, was cleared from the Cherem. Uh, the rabbis of Salonika, he still, I assume, lived a decent life and was welcomed back into his community. But I think it really shows you uh, the challenge, is what we're talking about, uh, of, of how to take these madrashim. Um, uh, I think the best thing I can say is what the Alter Rebbe says. Learn the madrashim the first time, just like you're learning it up in the Cheder. When you become older and wiser, the Midrashim will reveal their great wisdom to you in a different way. You're learning them up the first time, you have to put your disbelief and shock a little bit on the side and realize that within the Midrashim Chazal there are deep and very important things. But don't feel that you're going to get it the first time around. Okay. Have a great day. Okay. Okay.